Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's I Critical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ludwig Lin. Today I will be speaking with Daniel Leisman about the article Patterns and Outcomes Associated with Timeliness of Initial Crystalloid Resuscitation in a Prospective Sepsis and Septic Shock Cohort, published in Critical Care Medicine. Mr. Leisman is a clinical researcher in the Department of Emergency Medicine at Northwell Health and is a MD-MSCR candidate at Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York, New York. Before we get started, I would like to thank Mr. Leisman for being available to do this podcast. This obviously is such a huge part of every critical care clinician's life is to deal with sepsis, and if we can make any headway in the way we take care of patients, it's great. So thank you, Mr. Leisman, for being here, and we will get started by making um, sure that we share any disclosures that you have, Mr. Leisman. I have no disclosures. Okay. Well, let's um, get started. So um, this article talks about initial crystalloid resuscitation, and there have been plenty of things written about this recently and plenty of discussions. Uh, Mr. Leisman, maybe in your own words, uh, I could get you to summarize for us the uh, clinical importance of your study and tell us a little bit more about the way you guys um, put together your study design. Yeah, so fluids have been at the center of um, of uh, sepsis treatment for a long time, um, but there, there's a fair amount of controversy about what the role of fluids is in, in management of sepsis. And there, some of this kind of stems from this, there's the distinction between when we're talking about fluid early versus fluid late. Um, and most of the harm signals that we've seen have come out of looking at long-term fluid balance. So for example, in the FACT trial, we saw that uh, increased fluid balances, um, you know, in, in, a vo- in a volume liberal strategy was associated with increased ve- uh, ventilator days and an ICU stay. Um, and there was a paper by Dr. Marek in uh, intensive care medicine last year that um, also showed that increased fluid volume was associated with higher predicted mortality. Um, there was some, another paper published in critical care medicine uh, last year. Conversely, though, we've seen that when we look at early fluid res- uh, resuscitation, that is, you know, the initial fluid resuscitation provided to sepsis patients, we consistently see an association with protective effects and survival. Our group had had looked at that previously in a single center study in the emergency department. There's a group, I believe, uh, from Pittsburgh that uh, looked at this in the pre-hospital setting. And there's another paper that's found that increased fluid volume in the first thing at six hours is associated with survival for ICU patients with sepsis. Um, So there's kind of a distinction there in in how we look at that. So what we did was we... We're fo- we focused on the first part of that issue, which is you know the time to the start of crystalloid resuscitation, and we chose the initiation time because, in our view, we found that, and as we've you know looked at this over the last few years, completion times for fluids are very hard to study in the real world, just because of the way workflow is and how they're documented, right? It's the time that you know the nurse or someone else noticed that the bag was finished, which is not necessarily a reliable measure of of when the fluid bolus was actually completed. So, from a quality improvement standpoint, our view was that you have to start early in order to finish early. Um, and then, from a, for our quality initiatives at Northwell, that's always been what we've we focused on was the time to the start of the fluid bolus. So, with that in mind, we tried to characterize the patterns of fluid resuscitation that are given to patients for their initial uh, resuscitation for sepsis. And so we looked at that in terms of how fast were they getting fluid and how much fluid did they get. Um, and then from there, we looked at the association with outcomes. So this was, this was an analysis of our uh, 
prospective quality improvement database. So we looked at about 11,000 patients from nine different hospitals, and we looked at demographic factors, comorbidities, and um, presentation factors and severity, and we looked at the distribution of fluid resuscitation practices over those patients. Uh, we then compared outcomes, specifically mortality, ICU admission, ICU length of stay, mechanical ventilation, and hospital length of stay for those patients and looked to see how they differed based on when fluids were initiated. And what we found was that, in general, there are distinct groups of patients who don't get fluids early or who get less of them. And we also found that, in general, the earlier you start fluids, the better you're going to do. And we, across the board, we saw an association with decreased mortality, mechanical ventilation, ICU utilization, and hospital length of stay. And then what's interesting, though, is that we did not observe any effect modification for the association between time to initiation and mortality, which means it doesn't matter what comorbidity burden somebody had. It doesn't matter you know, how sick they were when they presented, where they presented, whether it's the emergency department or on the inpatient floor. The later you started the fluids, the more likely the patient was to have a bad outcome. Do you have a particular threshold time that you guys looked at? Right. So we, we split patients into three different groups, which for the primary analysis, which was kind of reflected the natural distribution of our data. So our local protocol requires that crystalloid be initiated within 30 minutes of the sepsis time zero for us, where, which is a little bit more aggressive than the surviving sepsis campaign SCCM guidelines which requires that fluids be completed within three hours. Um, so based on the ordering practices of our institution, uh, which is that you know a bolus be given at 500 mils over 15 minutes, we kind of found there were three groups. There was patients who had their fluids initiated in, within 30 minutes or less, who met both our local protocol and the SCCM guidelines. There were patients who had fluids initiated beyond 30 minutes, but in the first two hours, which based on how fluids tend to be ordered, our institution would have met the SCCM guideline. And then there were patients who would not have been, whose care would not have been in adherence with either the local protocol or the guidelines. So th those were our three groups, less than 30 minutes, 31 to 120, or greater than 120 minutes. And we're looking at fluids in the, administered in the first six hours of care. Got it. I wanted to ask you one more question about the uh study sample. So these were all patients from the Northwell Health Network. Is that the patient population? Right. So the Northwell Health System is um, it's uh, the largest health system in New York State. And so all of these patients are drawn from the hospitals within the Northwell Health System that are both participating in the sepsis initiative and are contributing data to our quality uh, database or were contributing at the time of the study. Um, so that's nine hospitals in total. There were um, five community centers and four tertiary centers. Okay. And do you approximately know the uh, mix of the different patient types? For example, medical, surgical, trauma, oncology. So in terms of medical versus surgical, that was that was a variable that we had overlooked uh, when we had planned the database, and not something that we were able to report. Um, we can say that about 77% of the patients were emergency department patients, um, or were emergency department patients when sepsis was identified, I should say, and then the remainder were from critical care units or the inpatient floor. Got it. How many of those emergency rooms in the Northwell Health System are trauma centers, just um, curiosity? So we have one level one trauma center. Um, and then there's, for the other tertiary centers, I believe they get some trauma, but they're not designated trauma centers. Okay. And I wanted to get some of this 
statistical questions out of the way now. For example, you were comparing the outcomes within this patient population. So sometimes, you know, over time, the practice actually changes, and everybody is improving. For example, and other times, you know, different practices、uh, and protocols are instituted. So. Did any of that happen here? Did you guys look at the、um, change over time of overall mortality rates? Right. So that that's a great question. So we actually started our sepsis initiative back in 2009, and we've we've been tracking data for a while. And so we we'd actually done、um, an earlier study, which I think was also published in Critical Care Medicine, where we looked at a sequence of of、um, cohorts and looked at the effect of the bundle on mortality and. Uh, for sepsis patients, our local sepsis bundle that is, and、um, in that study, what we had done is we had allowed for a run-in period before the first cohort was ever drawn to control for a Hawthorne effect, I should say, and then we kind of studied sequentially from there. So this is at the end of all of that. So at this point, the sepsis protocol, which hasn't changed since then, has been in place for you know the, be- the better part of a decade now, and has. Been consistent. So these patients that were analyzed over what period of time were these patients accumulated? So these were patients who were accumulated over a period of a year and a half. Okay, all right, good to know. You were talking about how 77% of these patients were in the emergency department, and the rest were inpatients. And you also have the sepsis bundle. When there are sepsis patients identified on the floor, what is the workflow for them? So we have a we have a sepsis bundle that is specific to the emergency department, and we have another sepsis bundle that is specific to the inpatient floor.、Um, the inclusion criteria for sepsis are the same, and then the workflow is in in many ways it's similar. Basically, it, you know, it starts with the same clinician evaluation and ordering of labs, which must include a lactate and two blood cultures, and then if the patient meets our clinical criteria for a suspected sepsis. Then the resuscitation bundle is initiated and has all of the same、um, requirements as in the ED in terms of time to intervention. Okay, all right. Onward to my questions then. So, I, I think everybody wonders about those quote-unquote special patient populations that they worry about when giving large amounts of fluids. And I I know that is something that you definitely looked at. So please tell us more about what you discovered in terms of mortality and the treatment pattern for patients with conditions such as heart failure and or renal failure, which give a lot of clinicians pause when thinking about early and aggressive fluid therapy. Sure. So I think the biggest finding of the paper is that there's a Very wide and heterogeneous distribution of the type of fluid resuscitation that we provide to patients with sepsis. For example, as you alluded to, patients with congestive heart failure or renal failure, they wait about 20 minutes or and 16 minutes respectively longer to receive their initial fluid resuscitation compared to patients without those comorbidities. Conversely, a patient with hypotension gets their fluid resuscitation about 40 minutes faster than a patient who's not currently hypotensive, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but That's just something we observed. We see the same types of patterns with volumes, right? So a hypotensive patient gets about 12 mLs per kg more, whereas the congestive heart failure and the renal failure patients get about 14 and 15 mLs per kg less. We also found that patients who were not febrile, perhaps unsurprisingly, also waited a lot longer, usually 30 to 35 minutes longer, depending whether they were euthermic or hypothermic. Also interesting, patients who were presenting to the emergency department with their sepsis episode. 
were treated more than two hours faster with respect to fluid resuscitation than were patients who were on the inpatient floor. Uh, in general, they got about 14 milliliters per kilogram more as well, which is interesting, although perhaps not surprising. But in general, so we can see that what type of patient we're talking about when we talk about sepsis patients has a lot to do with um, how we administer fluids to them. On the other side of that, though, when you, as you mentioned, the association with outcomes, across the board, we see that the adjusted odds of mortality, so after you control for the demographic factors, comorbidities in these patients, how sick they were at presentation, and the types of organ dysfunction they had, as well as other interventions, for example, how timely they received their antibiotics. What we found was that the adjusted odds of mortality were 0.76 compared to patients who received their fluids uh, beyond two hours. So that's for patients who received their fluids within 30 minutes and within 31 minutes to 120 minutes. Their odds of adjusted mortality was 0.76 with respect to patients who received fluids initiated beyond 120 minutes. That's pretty significant data. And what about those particular patient populations like renal failure and CHF patients? Right. So this was a pre-specified analysis where we tested for effect modification to see if whether or not you were a CHF patient or a renal failure patient or if you were hypotensive, as well as patients with AKI or altered gas exchange, if those patients did not demonstrate the same pattern or an accentuated pattern for the association of early fluid initiation and improved outcomes. And what we found is that across the board, the association of the time to fluid initiation and decreased mortality or mechanical ventilation does not vary between phenotypes. The interaction effect was not significant, which suggests that it doesn't matter whether or not the patient has these comorbidities or this presentation. The time to initiation of fluid resuscitation is still a potential predictor of survival. So they do just as well when they get early fluid and they do just as poorly when they get fluid later. Right. I think that's really important for all of us to know, actually, when making decisions about fluids association. Was something that you mentioned when you were talking about the timing of fluid resuscitation was really interesting to me. The patients are all compared to time zero. So I assume all of the patients had a data point signifying that they met sepsis criteria. But what your analysis showed was that even when patients had met those criteria, the ones that were normotensive or the ones that were, quote-unquote, more stable-looking still got their fluids later. Is that correct? That's correct. Do you have any guesses as to why that happens? So I think, in general, volumes is its own can of worms uh, with this analysis. But I think it's, it's a similar issue there, right, where the sicker patient is going to get treated faster because they're more clinically obvious, you know. And, and I think that kind of, you know, those types of things kind of explain a lot of the patterns we see. Um, for example, that, you know, respiratory infections generally get fluids later or that um, heart failure patients are getting fluids later and with less volume. Uh, because, you know, when a patient walks into the emergency department, an acute exacerbation of heart failure is still on the differential diagnosis of a patient who may be having a pneumonia, especially, you know, if the chest X-ray is inconclusive. So I think that that may be part of, of what's uh, going on here. Well, I think that makes me think about a couple different things. One is either we need to really push this concept of, to be honest, you know, protocols 
and to trigger the resuscitation whether somebody is feeling nervous about ordering the fluids or, or not, or maybe the way the data is being captured is not entirely clinically correct. So for example, you're saying that there are some patients who might be septic but might have CHF, so the decision gets made later about whether they need fluids. Well, so is that patient's time zero truly time zero for the diagnosis of sepsis? So our approach to time zero, because there's such an unclear line there, is not to go by the time that the patient is diagnosed with sepsis, but to go by the time that they met certain objective, or as objective as possible, criteria that we had pre-specified. So for us, that was a suspected or confirmed infection and two SARS criteria and at least one of our organ dysfunction criteria. And the rationale for that, at least from a quality improvement standpoint, is that time zero has a tenuous pathobiologic basis anyway. And you can't, you know, there's no, this isn't, we're not talking about acute MIs and strokes where there's a definable event and we can grade everything based on the time that that happened. Sepsis is just murky. But what we can do is we can hold people where we can try to establish quality standards for the time that the treating clinician has sufficient information to suspect sepsis and implement the bundle. And so that was what we decided was our time zero. It was the time that there was, based on the clinical data that was available, this was the time that the bundle became indicated. That sounds very reasonable to me. So that really makes it even more important than to think about how to be able to standardize the management of these patients so that they do get fluids at the same time point as the other patients. Well, I think it's a good thing for all of us to think about. You know, obviously real life is a lot more difficult when it's one particular patient compared to, you know, a a study population. But to me, that is what your findings seem to suggest, is that once somebody meets the criteria clinically for sepsis, then they should get the fluids. And the fact that some patients are getting later fluids may be something that fails to optimize their survival, for example. How do you feel about that? I think that that's that's all totally correct. I think standardizing, at least in the early phase of care, is something that, or at least with respect to fluids, is something that's, at this point, at least suggested by our data. You know, one of the co-authors on our paper, something he likes to say is that he'd much rather give Lasix than Levofed. Um, and I think that some of the some of the there's a lot of reluctance about giving fluid to, to some of the patient populations we've identified as not receiving much fluid or receiving fluid later. And I think that that kind of gets back to the discussion about early versus late fluid. To be and to clarify, the SCCM guidelines call for one bolus of a 30 cc per kilo crystalloid administration. And beyond that, then it's about it's reassessment and judgment in moving to vasopressors. You know, which is not necessarily what happens, right? And I think that that might be the cause of some of the reluctance for some of the later about, about fluid for sepsis patients, because we all know that invariably patients can get, you know, 10, 12, 14 liters over a 24, 48 hour period before they end up in the ICU, which is not what the guidelines call for. At the same time, a single fluid bolus administration of 30 cc's per kilo in the early setting in our data is associated with improved survival. So in that situation, you know, I think that adherence to the SCCM bundle 
is probably a, a good bet. I, I think your data strongly support that. And to, I think, maybe help assuage clinicians who still have misgivings about that, you, you also found that giving patients less than even 20 milliliters per kilo of resuscitation fluids actually had worsened outcomes in a way, right? I don't know that I would conclude that from our data. Okay. I think, you know, there's this culture of, you know, giving more fluid to sicker patients that is so pervasive that regardless of any attempts we make to adjust or control for confounding influence, there's no way to separate that bias and that data endogeneity in our analysis. So I think that when you look at the association of less fluid with improved outcome for mortality, for example, the guideline recommended volume of 20, we did 20 to 35 cc's per kilo versus more than that, um, and the lower volume there was, was beneficial, I don't know that you can conclude that the guideline recommended volume is better. Conversely, for mechanical ventilation, the low volume, so less than 5 milliliters per kilogram or less than 20 in general, I should say, were associated with increased risk of mechanical ventilation, which doesn't make any sense. So from there, what, what I think we can conclude is that we don't give a lot of volume to patients that we are afraid of giving volume to, like heart failure patients and renal failure patients. But I don't think we can really conclude anything about the association of initial fluid volumes on outcomes from an observational database. Okay. Well, that kind of leads to the next question then. So what are the next steps for your study group based on these findings? So for our group, I think we want to delve into this a little more. I think that we're looking at overall trends in a group of 11,000 patients, and we're looking at, in general, what happens. And even we break it down into the subgroups with our effect modification analyses, like looking at CHF patients and renal failure patients, again, we see that, in general, the timeliness is important. But I think, you know, where things are really going right now is that we're looking to find a more precise way of tailoring therapy to the patient. And I think that, for us, it's going to be our next steps are about putting our heads together and figuring out how we want to really tailor fluid therapy to the individual patient. Because while many patients likely benefit from fluid therapy, as we've shown in this, in this analysis, there are likely still some patients who do not, and ultimately all patients are going to reach a point at which additional fluid does not help. So I think from there, I think what we're, we're going to try and look at is how to really do a deep dive into this and how to tailor therapy over perhaps a longer period of time. That will be interesting. I also was curious about whether your group had shared your findings with the Northwell Health System and whether they've modified their workflow or you know, activated um, additional teams in order to respond to some of these timeliness findings. Definitely. And I think that's, a, that's an area of active work right now, and that's something that we're going to keep moving towards. I think it's very inspiring. I, you know, from our conversation, what I'm hearing is that the ED is quite responsive and, in a way, ready to act on patients. And, I, you know, I see that in my own practice. And I think on the inpatient floors, it really takes constant motivation and constant improvement to make sure that we all are ready to act on these patients because, you know, there's the electronic health record that one has to navigate, things have to be approved, the materials have to be sourced, 
and it adds time. So I think in a way the ED is much more able to be responsive and you know, I think that's kudos to the emergency medicine departments, um, you know, across the nation, across the world. So I think the question is, how do we translate that type of workflow and care to the hospital wards? So I think that'll be interesting too. Well, I, I think that's a good point to use to wrap up this conversation. Well, for me, I think this was a very good point to revisit the thought about Early fluid resuscitation, the fact that starting fluids early seems to be associated with mortality benefit, that at least, you know, in this database, a lesser amount of early fluid resuscitation actually was associated with an increased probability of mechanical ventilation. But that, as you pointed out, early fluid resuscitation does not necessarily mean a overall largely positive fluid balance for that patient's stay. So we might all need to think about those two things as separate topics. So I wanted to thank everyone for joining us today. And again, thank you to Mr. Leesman for being available for this. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org backslash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCriticalCare podcast, I'm Dr. Ludwig Lin. Attend the 47th Critical Care Congress to be held February 25th to 28th, 2018 in San Antonio, Texas, USA. The Society's Congress is the largest multi-professional critical care event of the year and features innovative learning experiences that encompass the full range of developments in critical care. Register at www.sccm.org congress. Ludwig Lynn, M.D. is an intensivist and anesthesiologist at Summit Altibates Medical Center in the Bay Area in Northern California and is a consulting professor at Stanford University, where he teaches a seminar on the psychosocial and economic ramifications of critical illness. Dr. Lin did his medical training, anesthesia residency, and critical care medicine fellowship at the University of California, San Francisco. He has served as faculty at both Stanford University as well as the University of California, San Francisco, where he was a professor and the medical director of critical care at San Francisco General Hospital. He has interests in patient-family communication as well as education. Being a SCCM podcast host reminds Dr. Lin of his undergraduate days as a news broadcaster for his college radio station, KZSU. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.